it's Hillary from Midriff. I want to welcome our newest podcast sponsor to the show, DistroKid. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all major streaming platforms and artists get to keep 100% of their royalties, which is bonkers and amazing. Midriff listeners get 30% off at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Midriff. Again, that's distrokid.com slash VIP slash Midriff. Thanks so much. Thanks to Midriff's sponsor, Earthquaker Devices. Earthquaker Devices are continually identified as leaders in the music gear industry for their commitment to creating a better, more inclusive, diverse, and welcoming music culture. You've probably seen it yourself, right? They are intentional in this work, and they take the time to do it well, and you can see it in almost everything they do, right? From sponsoring podcasts like this one to their representation in social media and artists they endorse, right? And there's probably other things that we're not even seeing, right, that are behind the scenes. And then there's their truly unique, creative, inspiring pedals. Did I mention they make pedals? They're made in by hand in Akron, Ohio by like a whole pile of really, really awesome folks. Their pedals are useful and easy to use tools for like any instrument as a guitar, bass, synth, drums, whatever. And they make pretty much every type of pedal under the sun. Whether you want an octave pedal, you want a distortion pedal, you want a fuzz, you want some modulation, they've got it for you, including a few super affordable pedals that you can grab for under $100, right? Amazing. If you hear folks sing their praises, there is a reason why. And I personally played Earthquaker pedals for over 10 years, and I'm proud to have them as sponsors on this podcast and to have been able to work with them as well. And you can learn more about Earthquaker Devices at EarthquakerDevices.com. Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I'm your host, Hillary Jones. So it's a new year and there are going to be a few changes here at Midriff, which is super exciting. So the last episode was a big fun update, which included a live audience. So what else is new, you ask? So uh, I'm, I'm excited to share that Midriff has officially joined the Ruinous Podcast Network. And Ruinous is based in Seattle and they support a ton of cool music-related podcasts like the High Gain Podcast, who were kind enough to have me on as a guest a while back on their episode one seven. Tour stories with Joe Plummer, who plays in the Cold War Kids and previously the Shins and Modest Mouse, a bunch of other folks. And Tomorrow We Die, whose most recent episode featured Lozen, who are one of my all-time favorite two pieces. I'll add a link to Ruinous in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. So what does this all mean for Midriff? So the biggest major change that's going to happen is that I'm going to be uh, get, get back to my previous bi-weekly release schedule. It's been too hard with other projects to get episodes out more than once a month over the last year. So I'm excited uh, and really looking forward to that. And of course, they'll also help get the podcast out to more people. So that's all good news. It also means that I'll be changing up the podcast format a bit. So traditionally, I've done one podcast with an interview. And then at the end, I'll discuss a topic relevant to creating like a better environment for everyone in the music industry. Um, so moving forward, I'm going to separate those two out. So each episode will rotate between an interview and then me discussing a topic. And I'm hoping that this will be a useful shift for folks to have like two shorter episodes on potentially disparate topics rather than one long episode. And there might be a few more shifts as well, but we're going to, you know, just feel that out for now. All right. So 
today is an interview episode, which is going to feature the very awesome Taylor and Gary Seberg. Taylor is from sort of everywhere, um, and they moved around a bunch as a kid, which we'll talk about a little bit, but are now based in Minneapolis. They happened to be in Mexico during our conversation, which was fun. They are known for their guitar playing, I think, by a lot of folks, but actually play just a wide range of instruments, in addition to singing and rapping, depending on the moment. And they play in the group Black Velvet Punks and do sort of... Uh, you know, session work or support work with a number of groups in Minneapolis area and beyond. They were also part of Black FM, which was based out of Chicago and featured former midriff guest Crystal Flowers from episode 47. And we talk about their gear, their writing process, growing up as a military kid, as I mentioned, and how that informed their work, double consciousness, moving to Minneapolis just a few weeks before and a few blocks from the area where George Floyd was killed and their subsequent subsequent work uh, supporting and organizing in the community. I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation for sure. Before that, let's give a shout out to this episode's sponsors. So first up is Earthquaker Devices. Earthquaker has continued to share some sweet, sweet life pedal content. And I shared a life pedal video as well, though mine was an earlier version. But regardless, the pedal really is just pretty ripping on guitar and bass and presumably other instruments as well, but I haven't tried that on it. I tried them on yet. Uh, also the Dave Pajo from Slint and basically every other awesome band uh, had a cool feature recently. Liz Stokes from the Beths had a feature. Uh, Ken, uh, Kenji Hano, uh, they did a cool feature on Igor Cavalera, uh, who was the drummer of From Sepultura, at least that's how I knew him, has an I had no idea he has this absolutely amazing solo project as well. Uh, they have their hands in just so many cool things with cool artists using their pedals. So you should probably check them out if you haven't or haven't recently uh, at earthquakerdevices.com. Up next, we have Stompbox Sonic. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians uh, with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration, specializing in effects pedals. They offer a curated collection of companies large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By uh, working collaboratively through one-on-one -on -one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free environment for all musicians where Sonic experimentation is encouraged. Whether you play guitar, bass, and trumpet to harp, roads, and circuit bent speak and spell, Stompbox Sonic will work with you to find the right effects to fit your budget or your pro your project and your budget. Uh, check out StompboxSonicSonic.com for more. Okay. As always, you can follow along with Midriff between episodes on Instagram and Facebook at Midriff Podcast and with that, let's get into my interview with Taylor. Taylor, welcome to Midriff. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. On location in Mexico. Yeah, on location. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. Uh, and, you know, uh, a couple notes real quick before uh, we get going. This is our first time doing video podcast, which is very exciting. So hopefully we'll have some video available for folks or at least snippets of it. So that's cool. Exciting for me. I hope exciting for you as well, Taylor. Yeah, I I can see the enthusiasm in your eyes. <laughs> You're glowing. <laughs> it's because of the um, 70 degree weather outside. 
Honestly, uh, yes, <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, the other thing is that um, we had planned initially, I had asked you to be part of this panel discussion that we're going to be doing in Minneapolis, but you're like, oops, sorry, I'm going to be in Mexico. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that you agreed to, to, to join me, even though you couldn't be there. We're having this conversation now, which is awesome. So thank you so much for, for joining me. Oh, no, I just said I definitely <laughs> wanted to be a part. Um, and yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't do the physical. I love Kata's uh, Records and Coffee, too. I, it's one of my favorite spots. Um, and they're, the owners are really good friends with my friends, Mona and Jesse, who run like a it's restaurant called the Angry Line Cook. So yeah, that whole area of St. Paul, I'm like, fans. Nice. Cool. Well, I'm glad this worked out. I'm very excited. And I'm excited for you to be in Mexico in 70 degrees. Uh, <laughs> so let's get started. Um, for folks that might for some reason, not know who you are, might not be aware of all that is Taylor. Uh, can you share your name, your pronouns, a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Yeah, um, my name is Taylor Ngere Seberg. Um, it's, I've, you know, I gigged around the cities for six years as Seberg. That's my um, adopted dad's last name. Um, and that was also my band name for a big chunk of, uh, I went like by that moniker. And then Ngeti is my Kenyan last name, so I'm third generation. My my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, is from Nairobi. Um, so I've kind of been incorporating both elements of, you know, my heritage into my artistry. Um, and I use they, them pronouns. I'm a black, trans, uh, gender non-binary musician. Um, and I got started because my mom was a piano player who went to Juilliard, and she taught me how to play when I was four. So music's been really important to her. She really wanted to integrate it into my family life. So all my siblings know music. Um, and she just gave me an appreciation for it at a young age. That's amazing. So, so she went to Juilliard. What's, what was her background then? She is a uh, singer. Like she's been anywhere from a mezzo soprano opera singer, um, to being a choir director when I was in church growing up. Um, she's, you know, she's been in theater. She's done theater directing and, and, uh, theater, uh, like writing and things like that also for scripts and for plays. So she's just kind of like very well versed. She's musically trained, classically trained. Uh, and so she wanted all of us to, to know that and have that skill set when we were little. Were you into it when you were little or were you like not into it? Like, did, or were you like immediately you're like, yes, this is for me. What, what was the, what was the situation? So I was never into practicing. I remember like being that kid that like when other people were out, like, you know, playing in the street and like getting to do the things that they wanted to do, I had to be the one who's like, no, I have to stay inside and I have to practice, you know? And I, I never really liked it when I was a kid, but then the older I got, the more of an appreciation I got for it because then I started doing talent shows when I was in middle school. When I started doing mm. talent shows and I started winning talent shows with my brother, my older brother, that's when I was like, oh, like I really like music. Um, and it became like an outlet for, and a journal for my emotions. So, uh, music ended up being ex an extremely important part of my life. So, yeah, I, I feel like that can go a number of different directions for folks sometimes, right? Where they're either like, my parents made me do it and then I hated it. And then other people were like, I'm so glad that I had this. And now it's obviously like something that I'm integrating into everything that I'm doing every day as a musician. Um, yeah. So, and you started with piano, yes? Uh, yes, I started with piano and then I played flute when I was eight years old until like, eighth grade and then so, so third grade to eighth grade and then I picked up the guitar um and then I played the bass at some point because I went I played it for gospel baptist church um and yeah those are 
kind of the instruments that I've been like waffling between is like those four. Do you bring the flute in? I I, I saw that you play a bunch of instruments uh, and you sing and you rap. And so does the flute come back in sometimes or no? You know, I've put it down for like many years, but then recently uh, when I moved to Chicago, I played on my friend Neja's record that she had done through residency through this uh, company called Elastic Arts. And so I was working with this artist named Jana and I ended up playing the flute for some of her record, which is the first time I picked it up in years. Um, and oh, I had wow. to like relearn the aperture and the chromatic scale and all that stuff. Oh yeah. But then, um, so I haven't actually incorporated it, incorporated it in a lot of my own music, but I've it was a session player on someone's album in Chicago. So now I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I should, like, bring this back because I right know, something that I've, you know, been playing since I was eight. So, yeah. I feel like there's an opportunity to really get, like, wild with, like, if you had, like, a, a mic and, like, with pedals with a flute yeah. could be super fun. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's just a studio thing, like, I feel like the opportunity is there. Hey, this year, um, new year, new opportunities. You know what? 2023. Watch out. <laughs> I'm not going to be any of the Lizzo level, but, I'm, you know, I'll be, I'll be sorry. So you started when you were 14. What was your first guitar? Um, my first guitar. Um, so technically, it sucks that I'm in Mexico because I can't show it. But I technically have this mm. guitar that it wasn't my first guitar. It was a guitar that my mom used to just have sitting in the house. And it was a Spanish classical guitar. Mm that is a nylon string guitar and it's like I mean it's old like it's probably like two decades old like my mom has had it probably before I was born and I remember when I was Mm -hmm. a kid it used to just like kind of be a decoration piece sitting around the living room and I was a military brat so we'd move around a lot and there was always Mm -hmm. these staple pieces in my home that would like kind of stay no matter where we moved and one of those was a mandolin and one of those was that the Spanish classical guitar so when I was 14 I remember like I'd never touched it for some reason until I was like 14 of like a freshman in high school and then all of a sudden I was like oh I think I want to play um and then when I wanted to take it seriously and I started taking classes and my mom signed me up to like play with this um professional classical guitarist so I started playing flamenco music um and my and Spanish flamenco music was what I started off playing what I got into for many years and then mm-hmm. I think I shared guitars with my older brother because you know I came from a family of hand-me-downs where it's like you know I I shared his like Washburn like electric acoustic guitar and but my first yeah. electric guitar that I ever got was a that was like my guitar was a um, Epiphone SG it was like this kind of mm-hmm. heavy metal looking model guitar and the model was Emily the Strange which is like this this emo comic oh, book yeah yeah so it was like a very in the cut niche like emo wait there was a model there was a e- of Epiphone that? SG Emily the Strange model guitar that I bought that my mom bought me when I was like 15 years old you know like it was super super that was, sick. i bet that's worth money now honestly that's probably it, some like weird collector thing it, my, my mom got mad because i sold it like i sold it like maybe like like when i was 23 <laughs> and she was you know she was so heartbroken but she bought me my second guitar which is the guitar that now i when i was 16 that i've been using for all of my music career and that's this um the telly my my baby blue telly and i and i your telly is beautiful yeah, and i call her baby blue that's that's like my lifeblood. Like I, if I lost that guitar, mm-hmm. I, oh, actually I do have that guitar with me, <laughs> but oh, hey. so I can like take it out and like reveal this one. But yes, um, cause we're on video. Check it yes. out. <laughs> but, um, here is this beauty of my yes. guitar. And of course I have some stickers that I made. Um, my friend Alexis Pulitz actually made this one 
And then my friend Mona uh, made me this one for Black Velvet Punks. Yep. And then this is just, so these are different band ones. Yes, yeah, so I don't know if I can do this, but quality. This is a fuck the police. Oh yeah, you can. <laughs> this is a fuck the police. Yep. Classic quality. Yeah. Yep. So these are like nice. kind of like the this is like my baby of a guitar. You know, like I I've been playing this thing since I was yeah. I mean longer is that, than a decade at this point. Like is that like a Mexican? model or something yeah this is actually a mexican you know? made yeah. fender telecaster oh, it's just coming back home right now <laughs> yeah it is and the cool thing about <laughs> these like mexican made fender telecasters are because there's like american made ones mm-hmm. and then there's there's mexican made ones the the models are all slightly different and they're, there's and they're all unique they're not one is really the same the parts are even different so like even just like they don't even make this type of model anymore of guitar so even just knowing that like i have specific type of Fender Telecaster that like no one else has and then um I went to Vig's Guitars in St. Paul which is like my favorite guitar shop I love them so much they're uh, co-owners or a couple they're a married couple they're amazing um, and they're also artists and so they put in like these also like like there's it's they were single coil but now they're yeah. like single coil humbuckers huh. so it kind of cool. cut out a lot of the buzz and the and, but kept the bite yeah uh, kind of like the punk music for playing it but kept like the warmth that you can incorporating jazz music so that's why i really like this fuck with this guitar flexible my favorite do you tend to do you tend to like favor particular pickups or does it depend on what you're playing uh for the pickups it does depend on what i'm playing Mm -hmm. i i can like humbucker pickups but there's also on that particular guitar do you like do you stay with the bridge pickup or the neck pickup more uh, it really depends. I feel like when I'm doing jazz, yeah, it's the bridge pickup. When I'm doing like more gritty punk or metal, it's you know it might be the neck pickup. Um, yeah, but I like experimenting with things and experimenting with the sounds. I think this guitar is one of the warmest tones, and when you play it because of the neck, it feels like you're just like everyone that plays this guitar tells me it's like floating. Your fingers are floating on a cloud. Wow. Like it's so nice and smooth and just feels good to play awesome yeah i i feel like i've played that like a similar model to that before and it the neck is just like so comfy it's great and yeah my mom bought me that because she was like uh she was putting on this play at, at our church called godspell and you know godspell so stephen schwartz um the same person who made the musical music for wicked made the mm-hmm. music for godspell so she was like, I need a guitarist. And she, she bribed me, essentially. She was like, I'll buy you a guitar, a new guitar, if you learn all the music. And so I did. And then I got this guitar. And this guitar has been, you know, and I've paid like $10,000 guitars. And this is a, this is a, five, a 400 $500 guitar. And it's still my baby. It's still been like probably the best guitar I've played, you know. That's amazing. I love having that connection, too. Um, knowing that you're like, mom got it for you and all of that. You've had a lot of, you spent a lot of quality time together. Yes. yes. I try not to, I try to hang on to my instruments. Like yeah. they, when I have them, they stick around for like a long time. After this, I'm 1000% looking up that Emily, the strange guitar though, because I, oh, you have, to. have you seen the prices on those Hello Kitty Squires? Yeah. In my mind, it's, it's like a similar, too. I know <laughs> that so in my mind, it's just like a similar thing, but I didn't even know that existed. So now I'm, I have a lot of, I, I just have some curiosity. I'm going to look it up. Uh, great. I'm glad you know who Emily, the strange is. Cause I feel like it's like an emo Daria. Like that's how I Yes, 100%. Yes. <laughs> and I was like so into it as a kid because I was just like dark and emo. And, yeah, totally. Yeah. Emo yes. Daria. That's perfect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as far as like amps and pedals and stuff, other, other gear that you are, are, are using now, what, what, are you, what are you into? Um, so 
I the the weird thing is is I'm not super like I don't have like a specific amp that I'm like mm-hmm. die hard sold on. When I when I play in Minnesota, I tend to I I I bought this amp that's a Fender Mustang GTX, so it's oh, like yeah. it's a it's a digital amp. I'm not a huge fan of digital, and the reason why is because I like the analog feel. I mm-hmm. like the fact that like if I want to go in and change something, like the cool thing about the Fender Mustang GTX is it has over like 150 different right. effects programmed into it. So instead of having a pedal board, my whole thing is I don't want to like detract from the performance, so I don't right. want to be like sitting fiddling with knobs and stuff. And that's like I've been somebody who actually like hasn't played with pedals most of my career, even right. though. I do a lot of psychedelic rock music, you know, like I use a lot of other extraneous like elements and sounds and free- feedback and frequencies to like, mm-hmm. emulate those sounds. But lately I've been getting more into pedals. And so the Fender Mustang GTX was like a nice kind of like segue because I didn't have to like carry on a huge pedal board. Right. But I could like program. And, and the cool thing is that there's an app that you can buy on your phone. phone. Oh. It's called like Fender Tone or something. Okay. And it's, it's Bluetooth. So you Bluetooth connect it and you can actually like go in and change all the presets so and it does come with like a little pedal board so it's like a you know about this big yeah and then you can program five effects at a time that you can alternate between so i normally have like within that i have like you know my classic delay i you know i use delay distortion i have like an octavizer or an octave mm-hmm. so it's like it gives me like that nice like dual tone of like yeah it's like i'm playing a bass and a guitar do you at go the same higher time. or you go lower yeah mm-hmm. yeah i go lower yeah. i love like creating these lowers especially with like heavy metal music like that nice little did it you know yeah gym. You know, get that chunk. Yeah, that's that <laughs> chunky, like distortion yep. that's like lower end. Um, and then I think I have one more thing. I always forget. I always forget. Those those tend to be so, the main effects that I use. Right. And yeah, uh, I feel like when I've used those, I'm like, I'll, it, the technology, and you know, it's not like brand new technology at this point, but like the fact that it can have all of those different like sounds in one spot is still to me sort of magical. I get overwhelmed sometimes when there's that many options. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think that like it does allow, especially as you're saying, like if you're like, I want to get into trying all these different sounds, like how do I do that? Like I feel like that makes a lot of sense as like a like a a way to sort of be like, okay, I I have all of this stuff here, I can see what I like the best, and then kind of like hone it in from there, which yeah, is cool. And then I can see what I want to buy from there because like I I know for instance like you know I feel like like the there's like this Canyon delay. Oh yeah. Like mm-hmm. like, re, like that feels like the guitar effect pedal that I've seen so many guitars yep. have and every time I play with it I'm like this is an amazing effect pedal you know like, it can do so much um, <laughs> it really can yeah. it really can and so like and I love like pog stuff too like oh, Pog's, yeah. like octave, octave synthesizer stuff um but yeah I the reason why I haven't got into it is because when I first started I was so broke and each pedal is like a hundred dollars totally. so I was like I'm not gonna like spend a ton of money on this so I would use um yeah I would use little cheats and one of my cheats was was when I first started playing guitar in the Minnesota music scene, I had a Boss RC 300. So it was a loop station pedal. Yep. And this loop station pedal is what I use to live loop, you know, guitar, keys, bass, and um, vocals. And I did beatboxing and stuff with it. So that pedal, I've, I mean, that pedal, all my tech is like, de- like a decade old <laughs> at least, you know. I got that when I was 19. So that's literally a decade old. Um, but it's, it's just like cool to like, see how it's held up like boss gear is so boss, sturdy it's gonna live forever. it's gonna <laughs> outlive all of us we're gonna be really dead is. and boss is still gonna be you want that ds1 it's gonna work forever you're fine uh yeah, <laughs> DS1 is... uh, yeah i yeah, saw a I video it. of you playing the 
the the looper and I was going to ask about that as far as like, is that something that you use in a full band context or is it, do you hook all of your stuff up, like your guitar and your keyboard, your like synth or whatever and your vocals through there? I used to. So mm-hmm. like, I actually would have like two separate inputs. So like mm-hmm. I'd have like an input, like I would plug the loop station into the, into a DI straight into the, to the mixing board. And then I would have like an amp on the side um, because like, I still like the, you know, like the, the tone of the amp, like, yeah. like, cause that's the thing, like the sound is really dry when you're doing it just like straight out of an effect. Right. Eventually I'd like to try Helix, like a line six Helix, you know, but also when you talk about things being overwhelming, yeah. that's why I'm oh like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I try to simplify my setup. Like, okay, how many, how many tones do I really use? And like, you know, but I want to get experimental and that's what I'm doing more or more experimental. And that's what I'm doing this year more. Um, but, uh, yeah, I used to play with the band and then I kind of like stopped for a little bit mm-hmm. because syncing it up sometimes was hard. Like mm-hmm. the way that me and my old drummer used to do it was he would have like a, a rolling drum sampling pad and he would, we would connect it mm-hmm. through yep. the boss. And the cool thing about it is it quant, it auto quantizes when you hook up. That stuff still together. boggles my mind. Yeah. Like the clock, yeah. is it like a clock in or something? I it's don't like understand it. Yeah. So, so the drummer would play with like a click in their yeah. ear and then like, you know, it would sync, the click would sync to the boss 300. And then, so if I played something, you know, he'd be able to hear it directly in his ear. Yeah. Um, so, so we used to play like that, but I felt like it was really restrictive, which is kind of how I feel about backing tracks sometimes where I'm yeah. like, you know, you can't really d- deter from it. And I wanted more freedom. I wanted my band to have more freedom. Yeah. So I stopped doing it um, as much. And then most recently I played a gig that was sponsored by the University of Minnesota in December 14th at, at Hook and Ladder Theater. And I played my first solo set in the years. And oh, cool. It was, it was cool to see that like hold up. So I did like some live looping of like guitar and keys. And, yeah. So um, to me, like, like yeah. using that in a, I know there are bands that do it in, in like a, with a bit, with like a full band kind of thing, which to me just feels like so stressful. <laughs> I it's think doing it for a solo thing, about. even the solo thing yeah. feels stressful, but it, like, at least I'm like, okay, but it's just me and I'm only in yeah, charge of my things. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You're like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but that's impressive, but it's nice that you're able to like have that tool to put that stuff together. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a lot of pieces. And that's why I was like, I already have to just stress and worry about the set list and like well, everything else. Like, And so this kind of gets to my next question because like you have so many different projects. It seems like you're involved in, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how many you're involved in at this exact moment, but like, I feel like I'd, I'd be curious how what your songwriting process looks like, like how that differs depending on the project that you're working on. Yeah. Um, so my current project, like I, I finally, you know, because I do session work. So the, yeah. the thing that a lot of people like, I feel like um, may or may not know about me is like I prioritize session work probably to the equivalent that I do like performing my own music. Oh, cool. Um, I love I love performing other people's music. I yeah. love like I've been a part of so many like bands throughout the years and like hopped on, you know, I got to play First Avenue Main Room because I was playing guitar for Southside Desire for Marvel. Um, and and Ike Riley Assassination, I think, was headlining that show. Um, and so, like, things like that, like, I, I played on her set and I learned all of her music. And this is right after her husband Trevor died. And so, and Trevor had been a sound tech for my band for years. So I was like, of oh, course, wow. like, yeah. anything you need, like, I'll be a part of this band project totally. um, for this show. Um, but then, uh, in other aspects, like, so my main gigging band is Black Velvet Punks and it was previously called Seaberg and then it was called Seaberg and the Black Velvet Punks. And now it's just Black Velvet Punks and it's an all black, uh, punk rock, hip hop, jazz fusion band. 
uh, with me, my drummer Travion Dunlap, and my uh, bassist Roderick Glasper. And so we, for the last four years, you know, we've played Minnesota State Fair, we played Walker Terrace Thursdays, um, uh, yeah, Midwest Music Fest, we've played like all over, and um, I really love them, and they're like pretty much my blood, sweat, and tears who's gone into that band, so I really love them. Um, has the yeah. has the songwriting process changed as it's gone from in the, in these different name iterations? Because it seems like it's maybe is it representing something slightly different. I think it definitely has changed. Like um, when I was in Chicago, I was playing with this group called Black FM, which is like a which was essentially it was an iteration of Black Velvet Punks, but it was instead of being with men, it was with all Black Femme and trans people. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was making music with them. I was doing a lot of the same music I was doing with Black Hole Punks, but then I realized, oh, wait, this isn't the same vibe. This isn't mm. the same sort of chemistry and iteration of people. Like, we need to be creating something new and creating something different with us. So I think Black Hole Punks is very much my baby. So Travion and Rod, like, they let me take full agency over the songwriting. Yeah. Um, and I want to, and this year is getting them more involved and more included in the songwriting process. And Black FM was more, like, collaborative, Got like, it. creative songwriting. Um, but it's also really hard because I think sometimes like you get in a room and you like want to have an idea, but it's like, Ugh. you're, you know, cause so, some people I get together in a room yeah. and like, I have my friend, Eric, for instance, Eric Novatic, um, their name is Dissonant Dessert. And they're like, they play 14 different instruments. And every time we jam, we come up with a song. It's yep. like that, like quick and instantaneous. And so me and Eric have been on a lot of projects together too, just because anytime we get in a room, we could just make something. And that's right. the song like Lo- Lonely Mona that I like. I'd shared through email is like that's the song that like we just like went into the studio in one day and like made that song you know, because, yeah um yeah. so but like in the instance of like black fm i was like oh we have to be more intentional about how we're like getting together and like incorporating other people's ideas and doing these different things yep. and so um yeah certain projects i like i want to lean more on the collaborative side i think it's taken me a long curve in evolution to like be like how do i do that right how do i make it work how do i not be like it's all about me you <laughs> yeah know? yeah i mean obviously look at i mean you're making cool stuff so whatever you're doing is great uh but like <laughs> i mean I, I i feel like what you know oftentimes when i'm doing these interviews and i get to do the research beforehand it's so exciting because I'm just like, look at all this different stuff that you're doing. Like you're you're doing like so many different projects and so many different instruments and singing and rapping and playing guitar and shredding and like the songwriting itself and but cross genre. Like it's just it's very impressive to see all of that come together and for you to be able to create all of that. And so that's why I'm like thinking about like what that, you know, like even for you writing, is, is it like a thing where you're starting with guitar or you're starting with like synth or keys or like lyrics or how does that usually shape up when you're writing uh, writing it, that pro- that process go it really depends you know like before when i used to write music i would actually because guitar is not my first instrument mm-hmm. I, I used to write things on piano and mm-hmm. then transpose them over to guitar yeah so i would actually like i didn't even used to start on guitar i used mm. to just be like oh i'm gonna start on the keys and then yep. i'm gonna transpose it over now it, depending on the vibe of what I'm going for, like, because I am very genre fluid, like, you know, gender and genre fluid, yes. you know, like, I, um, sometimes I'll start on keys if I'm like, oh, I want, like, this Rhodes, electric Rhodes sound, and I want it to have, like, this jazzy hip-hop yeah. feel, or sometimes I'll start on guitar if I'm like, oh, I have this, like, total, like, heavy metal, like, 
atonal chord progression I can use, and it's going to sound great if it starts like this. And sometimes I do things on bass because I actually have started a lot of things on bass because mm. I want the rhythm in mm-hmm. the drum section to be like really. I I believe that the foundation of that is the most important to the yep. song being good. Is like, does it have a really good rhythm section? Um, so I've been writing more from a bass perspective too lately. Yeah. Um, so it really depends on the genre that I'm going, uh, music I'm going for. And it really yeah. depends on like, you know, cause I do write from all three instruments in many different ways, yep. varying ways. Um, yeah, that's, that's helpful. I was just like, it occurred to me in seeing the, like the range of different things that you're doing, like what that process might look like or where, you know, is it like, maybe you're just like, you had to happen to be playing piano that day and this thing came to you or you happen to playing guitar. Or you're like, I have a feeling that I want to write this song. It's like, whatever, like really like groove heavy or something like, you know what I mean? So, but that's, that's yeah. helpful. <laughs> um, so let's, let's uh, like talk a little bit about the art of the revolution. Um, can you talk and explain a little bit about what that project was or is? I don't know what's happening, if there's anything else happening yeah. with it. But. Um, we had, we, in 2021, we officially kind of, like, because we had put it out, and we were going to do this whole, oh, I'll start from the beginning. So The Art of the Revolution was a uh, compilation album, or is a compilation album, involving 10 different artists from all around, including myself, that are all around the Twin Cities, um, different arts organizers, you know, composers. Actually, my friends um, who were in Mexico City uh, featured on a benefit show that I threw. So when the pandemic happened in 2020, um, I lived on 35th Chicago in South Minneapolis. So I lived like three blocks down from the George Floyd Memorial site. And so I was like, how do I get involved? And so I was doing like a lot of community work with, you know, on the block, like with the actual people at the memorial site. But then um, at one point I was like talking to my roommates and I was like, you know, Bia and Josh and Phil. And I was like, oh, what can we, like, why don't we do what we do best? And let's throw a show, but like figure out how to throw it safely. So we literally like got all these theater people that were like out of work from theater, like, mm. the, like the people who were building stages and stuff. They ended up building a stage for us. Like, like, you know, we ended up working with Pillsbury House Theater across the street to do donation drive stuff. Like we did mutual aid stuff. Like, we set up in our garage, you know, like we had, this, <laughs> we had like 20 Peace Corps volunteers that my friend, like, like that my roommate Josh had had gotten and then like I worked for Minnesota Youth Collective as their ops manager so I got a bunch of volunteers through my job at Minnesota Youth Collective um and we threw this concert that had like 250 people come out and Care 11 the news network came out and Gully Boys played so we got like Gully Boys the Smokes um Kashimana Rebecca Nicholson um uh, Drea Queen Drea um Maggie uh, Rome Oral and Mike Dazzle um we just got like a bunch of artists and we raised like $2,000 and we paid out all the artists. And so we, after that, everybody was kind of like, you know, amped and like energized. Like, what do we do next? You know, right. what do we do next, guys? And at the time, um, Jacques, who is like one of my favorite, like French African people, like he was like, we need to like do an album. Like you did this show, this concert, you know, it had such good impact with the community. Like you need to do an album. So I was like, all right, like I'm a curator. Like let's, let's do it. Let's throw it together. And I pulled all my resources that I had, you know, cultivated over the years of my music career. So, you know, I talked to Andrea Swinson before Andrea Swinson left NPR. And I was like, Hey, like, I would really like to feature the artist songs on here and do an interview. And so I worked with Nathaniel Nelson, who I now currently am working with, with Midwest Music Fest. Um, and he and he works through Tree Dome, so he did a lot of the videography work. Yeah, and a lot which of looks great. Volunteering. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean he's he's an incredible videographer. Yeah. And so 
starting in that year, we became really close friends because we were just working together. And then, and then I found different people's studios, like this this dude Rob, who um, played his plays in, played in the band Honey Dick uh, with Catherine. Like he ended up um, letting us use his. He was like an engineer through his uh, artist loft space in in St. Paul and um, in where the Black Dog Coffee and Wine Bar mm-hmm. spaces. And um, and then like another person let us use their studio, and so we had like. Literally, like, pe- like it was like it was a full community effort. Like, we, we pulled in photographers and videographers, and I was doing about videography and photography, and, and uh, Maggie, uh, Maggie Nelson's partner was doing uh, graphic design for the logo and stuff. And so there was just, like, a lot of, like, pooled effort. And, um, and then, like, it's cool because now these artists just, like, have music that they got to, A, get played on Minnesota Public Radio, yeah. and B, like, they have all the rights to. Like, I gave them their masters. Oh, like, man. I gave them, like, all their stems and stuff. Yeah. and. I was very, I, that was my first time cracking into also like music law and publishing mm. and wanting to make sure I was being as ethical as possible. Right, right. Everyone's content, how it was shared. So yeah, we, we, we wanted to do a lot with it. We wanted to do like brand and merchandise and stuff, but I was too overwhelmed because I was like, <laughs> I'm one person. I don't have yeah. a team doing this yeah, with yeah, me. Yeah. So we ended up just like getting all the songs out, getting all the, the live in studio sessions out as well. Cause we wanted to do a visual. We were like, let's do a visual along with the song to help promote it. That was me and Daniel's vision. Um, and then we did an interview with Andrew Swinson. I think it was like, and I asked some of the artists to feature. I said, anyone wants to come on? So it was like me and Nathaniel. I think it was Drea was on that one cash. We did a couple with a couple of different news networks. So I, I forget <laughs> exactly the, who was on which one. The, the, the video I will share um, when the, when the, podcast comes out on my Instagram because it is yeah. it's just cool like because it's it's basically like uh your friend came in and just like re- you had all the video of everything of the actual recording happening in the studio the quality is really good yep. so everybody has all that and it's like also featuring these artists who like are you know getting this platform which so it's it's awesome that you're able to put that all t- together and then also have it for like a good cause so it's like a good cause on multiple levels basically like I was able to to bring the community together yeah it just seems like a, a great project yeah and everybody's songs were reflective of how it was political commentary and social right. commentary and how they felt about about the murder of george floyd and um and police brutality in the twin cities and police reform work and agency you know being black being a black body person in minnesota so there was like a lot of like cool commentary that different artists were doing and the lyrics that they were coming up with and totally you know it was it was really cool yeah well that's awesome. I'm uh, hopefully people will check it out, do a little research, and I'll have links for that as well. All right, I want to take a minute to shout out a few more of this episode's awesome sponsors. First, Holcomb Guitars. Nick Holcomb builds beautiful custom guitars to your specifications and has a mobile guitar setup as well. And that means he will come to you at your home or work or wherever you want in Rhode Island or Massachusetts, either fixing your guitar on site or picking it up and dropping it off when he's done. Who does that? No one. No one does that. No one except Nick. He has set up, repaired, and modified many of my own instruments, and he does great work. He has done that recently for me. Um, he is really just an angel and, you know, did a ton of work for me recently on a couple of uh, guitars that I was concerned were maybe goners and revived them. They are back to life, and I am honestly so, so psyched. So, 
I, I, you know, I, if you're listening to this podcast, I also know that we probably share some values on important topics. I'm guessing you probably do too. I know that he does as well. Uh, he will treat you as a real human person in the world and you deserve it. Um, so check out Holcomb Guitars if you want to learn more at holcombguitars.com or you can follow him on Instagram at Holcomb Guitars. And then we have Demonic Machines. Demonic Machines is a new sponsor that is LGBTQ plus owned and operated, making small batch handmade pedals in San Diego, California. You may have seen me playing one of their two clone copies which share the same circuit. I have the homunculus, which I love. <laughs> and you can find a video of me playing that on Instagram. Um, and the other model is called the HTR, which has the silly comment. Uh, it says, I mean, it's not like you can just go buy an authentic one for a reasonable price bill. It is hilarious. And if you haven't noticed, pretty much everyone in the pedal community is very much on board. I don't know why. I just keep seeing this coming up in different places, like every whatever group that I'm in, <laughs> it's everywhere um, and it doesn't stop being funny. But beyond that, um, they have just a huge slew of like rad overdrives, fuzzes, distortions, filters, modulations, octaves, so much stuff. Um, and their website has a clear commitment to a statement about a clear commitment to social justice. So if that's your jam, which I hope it is, you know that you're in the right place. Also, they have a red new looking drive pedal called the God's Eye, and that looks highly flexible. Um, I'm yeah, it just looks really cool. So check them out at demonicmachines.com. All right. Thanks to these awesome sponsors and back to the interview. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about like your own experiences. So obviously a lot of your own experiences are represented um, in the work that you're doing musically. I want to know what your experiences have been around, like around gender, around all of your identities and gear. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, how that's shown up for you could be like you know, at a retail space. It could be at a show, like whatever, however you want to interpret that recording. Um, how is gear intersected with your identities? Yeah, um, I'm like trying to figure out like what to get into. Yes. Um, like I came out, well, so I was like very, I came from a very religious family. Uh, I was in church like two or three times a week. Um, and I also lived on a military base my whole life or military bases my whole life in diff five different countries. So I kind of like had a lot of, you know, because of the military and don't ask, don't tell being a thing and it not getting repealed until 2012, I had like double this kind of like, I had like a lot of internalized transphobia and mm -hmm. homophobia that I had to like unlearn and really didn't until college because I just didn't see people that were like trans yeah. or queer. And when I did, it was always like this like taboo, you know, kind of like wrong thing. Right. Um, so then I, but in high school, I did come out as bisexual. I was like, oh, yeah, like, I don't. And I was very clear about being like, oh, like, I think, like, I think it's stupid to, like, not like gay people yeah. and, like, all these things. And then, but when I got to college and when I went to school in St. Paul um, at Hamlin, that was when I started, like, really diving into, I, like, sexuality. And I was like, oh, like, I felt this way my whole life, mm -hmm. like, looking back on all these moments, um, even growing up with, like, you know, two older brothers and then, like, a younger sister who later came out as trans. Like, there was just, like, a lot of things I was, like, realizing had cropped up in our lives throughout the years. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was 23, that was when I officially came out as trans. That's when I was, like, yeah, like, uh, but, but when I was in college, you know, I cut my hair. I used to have really long hair, like, down to here, and somebody was, like, 
you know, oh, are you transitioning to be a man? And I was like, well, no, because I don't really like feel that way. But like, I don't feel like a woman either. And then somebody said, oh, that's gender non-binary. And I was like, word? Like, that's a thing. Like, I didn't even know that was a thing you could identify as. Because my whole life I was like, man, I, I just wish I could be called Taylor. Like, I wish people would right. stop, you know, trying to call me this and this and this. And then when somebody told me that, like, this is a reality, I was like, what? Like, and then I was like, of course, like, that's what I am. You know, this is what I've been my whole life. Um, and I think the hardest thing, I mean, even to this day, the hardest thing is like, I, you know, I never try to convince people what I am or who I am because I know. But even just like, you know, correcting people. Mm-hmm. I used to be really shy. I used to be really, really timid. When I first came out on the scene, I was considered this very like, you know, black girl R&B artist, which was like kind of funny because I wasn't even really doing R&B music. Right. But well, that's a whole other this... issue where, you know, you yeah. get shoehorned, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was being typecast right. as like an R&B artist, you know, which A, wasn't reflective of the music I right. was making. It was like more like neo-soul, mm-hmm. experimental neo-soul music. But I was being typecast as like a black woman R&B singer. And I was kind of letting it happen at first because, you know, I had this song called I Don't Know that I did with Toki Wright. Toki Wright pr- produced it and then it got put on Minnesota Public Radio. And Chastity Brown had asked me to open up for her silhouette of Sirens album release show at Fitzgerald Theater, this sold out show. That was like my first show when I was 23. That was like, wow, like I'm performing in front of 1,200 people right, in a right. sold out theater. You know, like I was like freaking out. I was like, this is a real thing right now. Uh-huh. Um, and so when that happened, I was like, oh, like, you know, I didn't really have very much control over my image because I was just trying to, it was just, I was just trying to, trying like, to get have out exposure, there. you know, and that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then the, the older I got, the more I started being like, I don't care if it's going to upset people that I'm making music that's not conventional or pop or what have you. And I don't care if I present an image that's like, you know, not me being this like conventionally attractive black woman, I'm going to like be who I'm going to be and people are going to have to accept that. Mm -hmm. And it was a hard thing for, I think a lot of people, you know, even just like the shift of, of why people were listening to me, because Mm -hmm. I remember I used to get invited to gig at certain spaces that were like, you know, like it, it always felt like when I got asked to do a gig in black spaces, like Sometimes my transness was not really seen or appreciated, but then when I was getting asked to do shows at queer spaces, my blackness mm-hmm. and, and my, you know, me being Kenyan was not being received. So I was always in this constant liminal space of like, no one's completely really accepting and embracing who I am. Right. But like, also I'm just doing me and being authentic about it. So like, that's what kept getting me put into spaces was just like, I'm just going to do me and you know, what have you. Um, but I would love to marry, when I moved to Chicago, that's when I married kind of the two worlds. Because yeah. that's when, like, I was getting into, like, seeing more alt-black people. Like, that's when I, yeah. Chicago is really when I started seeing more, like, black goss, black emo kids, black punk heads, black metal heads. Because I wasn't seeing as much of that in Minnesota. Mm. When I did, it wasn't really embraced. Like, mm. people were, like, kind of like, ah, you know, like, there's certain niches in Minnesota. And if you're if you're not in one of those niches, people are just kind of like... Uh, you know, your music is cool, but I don't really know what to do with <laughs> Where it. do we put you? And yeah. In, yeah. 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 And in, and in Chicago, there was like more like room for me to be experimental. So, um, but like at the same time, like I, Minnesota gave me this platform and this kind of landing to be able to grow and to develop um, the sound that I wanted to have because I was so like genre fluid. And so like, I don't know what I want to do. Like, do I do what people want me to do or do I do what I want to do? Totally. And inevitably, I, cho- I chose like... I want to do what I want to do. I want to make music I want to make. You know? Right. Well, and that's, and, and that, I, I feel like it's in some ways freeing once you realize you're like, oh yeah, like <laughs> I'm just going to do this thing because it's like, if you can't 
functionally fit into the boxes, then you're like, well, I guess like, you know, here I am, which like doesn't take away the like whatever shitty experiences you're having <laughs> in those particular spaces, like as people are trying to like shove you into the boxes. But I think like it be, it seems like on at least the way that you've landed where you're able to do all these different things that you, you know, that seem true to you, like it, that, that feels like people are picking up on that in a positive way. And obviously it's like, you're doing a lot of cool stuff. So it seems to be working out as far as that's concerned <laughs> externally to me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't know how that actually feels for you functionally or not, but like, yeah. No, it feels, it feels good. I mean, I also feel like I'm finally getting out of my twenties. So like in three months mm. I'll be 30. And then I feel like I just will finally be in my era of not really caring. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like nice, you know? Like, yeah. Sweet. Uh, so we're talking kind of generally about um, music spaces. If we talk about like specifically dialing in into gear, have you, have you had like any particularly good or bad experiences related to your identities and gear, um, whether it's like shopping or like use or like treatment in a live setting? Yeah, but I would say like it's honestly more to do with my race. Like I remember. Yeah. When my, because my band wasn't always an all black band. Yep. When I first started, I actually played with like all white men, yep. and that was a very specific thing that I wanted to change because I didn't like the fact that like I was like the token front, you know, black lead singer, and then I had like right. a bunch of white men, which isn't like a necessarily a bad thing. There's a bunch of people who play in band dynamics that are like that. Sure. But then I specifically wanted a black band. Like I wanted a band that I, a, I was putting money, gig money into paying yep. black musicians and black artists. I was like, I'm in Minnesota. There's amazing black musicians everywhere. Yep. There's like that I can contract and I can hire and I can work with like, and I want to prioritize those musicians. And I made that my goal when I was like 20, 24, 25. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to do that. Um, but the hardest shift that I saw was how we got treated when we were on stage. Like mm. when I, and even when I went to sound check, like I remember going to the show, I'm not going to mention the place because if I mention it, you know, obviously, but I remember I was playing the show and it was kind of a bigger show and we were at sound check and the sound check was this white dude who was just kind of being an asshole. Uh -huh. to us. Like he, he was just like, you know, and I was, I was not taking it well. Like everyone, like the Travion and Rob were like, Hey, it's, it's cool. Like we'll, we'll play the gig. It'll be fine. But I was irritated. Cause I was like, we're so, t we're, you know, like they were just treating us like we were like like riffraff and mm -hmm. you know like oh you guys are you like I would ask for certain things and they act like we were being so demanding like of little things you know and then as soon as we started playing and we got done with our set that same sound tech was like wow you mm -hmm. guys were incredible you know I didn't know you could actually play you know just really derogatory comments yeah. that I was like dude like uh, like of course we can play you know like and it and I think that element has been a, a a big thing in my career like having to like prove to people that I'm actually like good at what I do or like that like we're actually talented as a band you know because I feel like a lot of times I walk into spaces and and this is a, this is a big thing with being perceived as a woman because I feel like um like and I've read commentary about that a lot from the Minati you know and, and Gully Boys because Gully Boys is like more femme and the difference is I'm more mask but when I was more femme people were like oh you can actually play the guitar it was like mm -hmm. always a surprise to them they were like oh you can actually do this so that whole like kind of like fragile woman, like, oh, you, can you carry your own gear? Can mm -hmm. you carry in your amps and stuff? And and I'd be like, yeah, I can I can do it. I've been playing four shows this month. Like, I'm fine. Yeah. You know? But that was a big thing where, and I didn't get it to the extent that I've seen, like, 
other like femme queer musicians get it because I've seen a lot of femme queer musicians get like straight up like people in the audience walking up to them and saying, oh, you know, you could have played it better if you, or you were a little out of tune or like, I've heard all types of like, uh, yeah. horror stories yeah, yeah, yeah. from like women and like queer, like, like, you know, trans musicians. So I'm glad that I didn't get it like to that extent, but I did get it a lot when I presented more femme. And then when I started presenting more mask, people were kind of like less like that, but they kind of were still like that. Um, there, there always is kind of a surprise element I see from certain people mm-hmm. where they're like, wow, like, I didn't know that you could do that. And you're like, you're not a, you're not a man, you know? <laughs> it's like, I'm just like, have y'all not seen like Nina Simone right. or like any of these, right. you know, remember like, music? <laughs> like, like, yeah. Like any of these <sighs> yes. Um, so sometimes it's like, I've experienced that a lot where I'm like, I feel like I have to like, but once again, it's like just kind of keeping my own energy and like not letting it get to me and just doing my own thing, mm-hmm. watching people be shocked for their own, you know, because it's never like it's never a reflection of me. It's always a reflection of other people. Totally. And that's what I try to keep in my head. It's like it never has to do with you. It has to do with other people's perceptions of you. And that's their thing. Yeah. So I had to deal with that a lot. I had to deal with that a lot from a racial perspective, from a gender perspective and from a racial gender perspective. And so, yeah. Um, but now I like it because now people ask me to do be feature on guitar showcases and they think of me. Um, and I like that because I'm like, cool, people actually like consider me to play guitar. But a lot of people who consider me to play guitar don't know I play like keys or mm, play bass. Right. So even just like like trying to let people know I do all these things is like kind of like the hardest thing. But, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I think one of the things, too, and you've hit on this a little bit already, is like, so because you're obviously uh, non-binary and because you've, I guess you have this like fluidity with regard to location as well. Um, so there's sort of like that is going on for you. Do you feel like that then plays into this sort of like genre fluidity, as you're saying? Do, are those, do you see the connection between those things or not? Like the connection between genre fluidity and the location, like where I'm based in? Kind of like, well, sort of saying like, like that you because you have personal like fluidity in identity in a lot of ways uh both with like where you came from where your uh where your like gender identity is all of that because you're experiencing a lot of fluidity with like location and and gender do you think that that is partly why or where your genre fluidity comes from i guess do you see a connection between those yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, even just the fact that, like, I started off playing in a different country. Like, I started right. off playing in Italy. So when I, when I was in high school, I was stationed in Friuli, Friuli Genesia, and Aviano, which is an Air Force base in northeastern Italy. And so when I started playing, I played with, an, with an, um, a Ukrainian guitar teacher. So even just, like, that yeah. background totally. is huge. I know a lot of Balkan music. Like, a lot of my music when I first started, it was even rooted in a lot of Balkan styling because it was from Eastern Europe. And so, like, a lot of my influence in music was based in, like, the European location that I was in, with, along with flamenco music, mm-hmm. flamenco music. Yeah. And then, and then I also grew up with a lot of jazz. So when I first started, I, I was doing a lot of that style of music. And then I kind of got more into doing more hip-hop and things like that because I had been doing spoken word mm-hmm. and I was also like this is when I was like you know in college I started like like more of my friends were listening to Kendrick Lamar and stuff like that and I and Kendrick Lamar is like my favorite probably like my, my icon of all time in terms of his artistry and like 
how he's like, I'm not a rapper. I'm, I'm an artist. Like, I'm like, I'm like, I, I think about all yeah. sides of like how the music sphere works and building it works. And that's definitely how I like view myself. I'm like, I'm not a rapper. I'm an artist, you know, like I'm not a this, I'm a this, you know? And so like the more that I was living in, in a, in the United, when I moved to the United States, it was in 2011. And so even just like my, more of my exposure culturally to being in Minneapolis and being in Chicago has also heavily influenced the way that I've created and generated music yeah. um, from like a rap and a hip hop perspective. So yeah. Um, yeah, I have, I have all these influences based on where I've lived in the location of where I've been. And even like the collaborators that I've had um, and the people I've connected with. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a, something that I was thinking about. Cause I think I'd heard you also in another interview, say something about like double consciousness with regard to that. And I wasn't sure if that maybe also was connected or played into any of that um, in your experiences, but I think you've, you've sort of hit on some of that already. So <laughs> we don't need to get into um, that unless you have something else to add yeah. to. I bet you might. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like, Double content. I like, I have this like whole thing about like, what can I actually culturally do? Mm. You know, like even in like wanting to do, like I have a lot of Latin jazz like roots because of my guitar playing, but there's certain times where I'm like, do I have a right to play this type of music or like do this certain type of music Mm -hmm. because it's not culturally where I'm from. And then on the flip side, I want to get more into like uh, Kenyan percussion and East African percussion. And that's something that I've been looking at more because I didn't get a chance to dive into it in my childhood. And so, um, and that feels like very much a part of my heritage because of my grandfather. So I'm just like, I like, I have all these like pieces of like, how do I appreciate, navigate, stand in culture and like be, you know, and a lot of that is just me like literally working with artists from the place, you know, and that's what I've been trying to do like more and more. It's like, okay, if I wanted this music, I should collaborate with an artist that's from this location if I want to do this I should like collaborate with an artist who is a master of this genre right now um and so because I've been doing that I've been getting kind of better at you know learning and wanting to create that's awesome yeah uh yeah it's 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 interesting because obviously I'm sure that those influences are going to be there just because that's where you kind of learned from in the first place but uh the awareness around it I think is really useful and then like being able to dig in a little bit more in the areas where you feel like maybe you missed out a little bit which is cool um all right so I want to think I want to talk a little bit about the connection between music and mental health is that something you feel cool talking about how have you um, had experiences where like uh, you've seen like mental health be either a challenge or a benefit in different ways to your like writing style or um, or or capacity or anything like that, where it's been like either a benefit or a challenge? I'd say like mental health is both. I mean, it is like a challenge and a um like an incentive to make music because for me like I mean almost all of my music comes from like a a point or a place of navigating my trauma navigating like the things that affect me negatively in the world my music also comes from a very political place Mm -hmm. of analyzing the world when I can't like you know I mean in a lot of ways it is like my journal you know like you know like a song is my journal it is it's like a window into my thoughts so um music has like you know, it's, it's kept me, it's kept me afloat in a lot of ways mentally. Um, I would also say on the flip end, like 
if I'm, you know, I, I mean, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 26. So like, you know, there are days where being manic depressive and trying to get out of bed for days, weeks at a time, and even trying to like get myself to practice right. is like painful and impossible. And so like, even this year, one of the big biggest things that I want to do is just get into a routine of being like, even if you're not motivated, mm. create, you know, release a video every Friday, you know, do a live this and engage, engage more, you know, engage yep. more with people, with the audience that follows you and um, supports you. And so like, that's what I'm trying to get into the habit of doing this year, which is like, even when you're not motivated, just do 30 minutes to an hour of something, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. just to, just, to, just to have, just to, you know, exercise the muscle. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm trying to get more into doing, but I, I know that it's been a deterrent for me in the past because, um, yeah, I've had to like kind of navigate my mental health and I navigate it a lot differently than other people because I, you know, I'm diagnosed with this, with, with BPD. So yeah. it's like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's, um, I, I, I think I can imagine too, if you're in this thing where you're doing it like regularly every Friday too, then you're getting like a more regular positive feedback too. So it's like that kind of like all kind of reinforces itself a little bit even if it's hard to do it in the first place, like getting in the habit, making that, that habit and pushing through, even though it's a challenge, seems like it could be useful. Um, do you have, um, like, so I, I, I saw that your job is like operations and human resources, right? Yeah. Like day job. Um, as far as that's, as far as that's concerned, do you have like things that you would recommend (laughs) that people in the music industry do, because obviously like you're sort of managing some of this yourself in your job that you would recommend that people integrate into their systems to help support the people that work there, whether it's like a venue talking to their employees or a recording studio or like a pedal manufacturer, like how can people create more um, supportive spaces for folks, um, you know, in their identities, whatever those might be, the range of that, how, what kind of recommendations would you give folks to, to make those spaces better? So I'm extremely blessed because Minnesota Collective, I'm pretty sure is like no other job I've ever had. I'm pretty sure yeah. it's like no other job that even exists in the world right now. Um, the fact that like I'm even able to work remotely and I have like a month paid break from December yeah. 16th to January 16th is like wild to me. Um, but um, I mean, Minnesota Youth Collective, I was lucky enough to get hired here right when the pandemic hit. So I got hit, I got hired and I had like all my gigs got canceled for the year. Like some of them were really big gigs that I was supposed to do, um, do First Avenue and stuff. And I watched as I was watching all of my yeah. artist friends lose gigs and lose money and lose jobs. Like I had this like ops job that, I mean, and the reason why I got the job was because I got it through a, um, an agency. Like I had a hard time finding jobs. I, I graduated from college, but I was like still bartending and doing music. And it was yeah. hard for me to get jobs. I was living paycheck to paycheck, sometimes less than that. And then, and gigs and, and doing session work and pay for play for bands. Um, and then I got this job and immediately they were like, Hey, we can be your own therapist. And I was like, right. what word? Like, are we get a therapist? You're going to pay for the therapist. And it was just like, you know, that was like the biggest thing was like, I actually got to have like yep. resources that I'd never had before as like a young black trans person with mental health things, you know, like even just having access to like a therapist, like having access to like, cause you know, she like our ED was like organizing is a very strenuous, yeah. exhaustive, 
stressful job. And so you, we, our company provides therapy to our employees so that you all, you all can do the work without getting incredibly burnt out. And I, even that, I was like, that's an incredibly ethical and beautiful thing that like more companies yeah. need to integrate and need to do. But, you know, maybe, maybe they say they don't have the money, but it's like, you know, I don't think MYC has any more or less money than some of these big corporations that have totally. millions yeah. of dollars being right. funneled through and they can't even do those things. So like, I think about it and my company is like the least capitalistic company I've ever seen. Like, cause I've worked for a lot, a lot of corrupt nonprofits. Like probably every nonprofit I've worked for has actually been pretty yeah. corrupt. Like, and it sucks to say that because the work they do in the community engagement they might do might right. actually be really beautiful and beneficial. And some of the staff that work there might be great, but the infrastructure is half the time right. terrible than for-profit companies. So even just seeing like Minnesota Youth Collective, like have a therapist for organizers, you know, have hundred percent covered health insurance, like, like not having yeah. to deduct that from a paycheck. Like the fact that we got unionized as an organ in two, three months at the end of 2020, you know, like things like that, like we have an amazing, you know, black woman ED, you know, like it's just like a lot of things that I'm really appreciative for this company. And like the fact that like, I didn't know a lot going mm-hmm. into the ops job. I had to learn a lot going in the ops job, you know, and especially mm. about finances and financial accounting. And, um, and I wanted to learn these things because I wanted to eventually in time run my own inclusive venue. Yeah. And so I was like, what's the best way to learn? Cause I've watched over the years, all these companies go under that I've loved like intermediate arts, you know, and bedlam, you know, like, and I was like, how do I keep a company afloat? And so even just working for an organ seeing like, Oh, here's, <laughs> here's, how yeah. you know audits happen and compliance things and here's how people yep. go under is like not by doing these things you know um and so even just knowing that stuff that I used to think was boring and used to be like ah like I hate that I have to do this but at the same time now I'm like I now have this skill set and this knowledge that if I wanted to if I wanted to integrate this totally. into like starting something I could and so all of that has inevitably been like part of my journey and process to like how do I curate better spaces and how do I like create spaces so um yeah I don't want to say like be like MMYC but I kind of want to say like be like but, MMYC yeah. I don't know like but it's, know, it's interesting and, like with regard yeah. to the the therapy piece for like an EAP or whatever like you have I think a lot of places are like you have health insurance and then people assume that like your mental health supports are under your health insurance but like it depends on the plan and then people have to find a therapist and then they have to like you know and all of that I feel like is such a um barrier for people because they're like, oh, I don't have the time to research. I don't, I'll find somebody and they aren't taking you, you know, like client, you know, like it, so having that wrapped in there just feels like such a nice way to like make it easy for folks. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. So we're getting towards the end of our conversation, unfortunately. Um, is there anything that we haven't gotten into yet that you wanted to get into, or you were expecting that we're going to talk about that you want to that you wanted to mention or discuss? I don't even know. The problem is, is like, I feel like there's so much that I've done that I can't, I'm not actively thinking about. <laughs> it's deep in there. Or there's so much <laughs> I'm currently doing that I'm like, yeah, right. I'm like, or it's like I'm currently doing stuff, but I don't know. I have to check my calendar, you know, like, I don't know what's <laughs> But uh, I'm like, well, I look at the clock and I'm yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I guess I got to do this in three hours. Um, but um, no, I mean, I guess like the main thing is, uh, yeah, definitely support Black Velvet Punks. I love my band a lot. Recently, I started playing with Keston Wright, who's in this band that's blowing up in the city. He's called Phoenix Dion. Um, he's an amazing guitarist. We've 
we've all, me, Travion, and Kesson have known each other for like four and a half years. So we've been floating around similar scenes with like playing for Joe Davis in the Poetic Diaspora, playing for Travion's band Candy. There's just like a lot of like interconnectedness in the scene. But Black Velvet Punks is like my like main bread and butter and what I like to get booked and gigged under. Um, but yeah. I'm also diving more into solo stuff, which is scary for me. Like I do, produ- I do production too. I produce and I've been making beats. I've been making beats for other people and for myself. So I'm also just like, yeah. So I'm also just like open to doing that. And I feel like I'm trying to get better at like telling people like, hey, like. You did it. See, look at that. You just did it. Success. um, Check. 2023. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Awesome. But uh, besides, yeah, besides that, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I also do videography and photography. That's like a big. Uh, so there's some videography things that you, you can see on the Art of the Revolution album that I've done. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm big into product management. Like, my biggest thing is, like, I almost love curating. If not equally, you're more than performing. And the reason why is because I love, mm-hmm. I love seeing people in a space being happy and being fulfilled and the energy being met and seeing the, in, in curating a space that you can see is an obvious need that people are, like, so like the biggest thing for me has been like sometimes I throw I throw something yeah. and it's not for everyone or it's like or sometimes I throw something and it's I've learned the hard way like sometimes I'll throw something and I'm like right. oh, the community didn't actually need this you know so it's also like being really patient and observing listening hearing what people need and then going like okay I've heard what you need I'm gonna supply that resource and I'm gonna do this um, so yeah like I just like have a lot of avenues of interests and passions. Um, and I just want people to know, like, they can always reach out to me. How, how, uh, if people want to, want to reach out to you or stay connected, how would you like them to do so? Um, you can hit me up through my email at tcbird93 at gmail.com or my Instagram. My Instagram is like the biggest place that I get like gigs and stuff. I Um, did. (laughs) It works, people. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Instagram does um and otherwise like i have like a website i have like a squarespace websites i think it's taylor and getty um and that has like my portfolio of all my work photography videography and music um it has a sample of like the art of the revolution album on it um but yeah and yeah yeah i don't know what i was gonna say past that <laughs> <laughs> cool uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk today. This has been really, really fun, and I, I really appreciate it. And I am happy for you and uh, your 70-degree weather situation. And I hope you get to enjoy it. <laughs> you yeah. earned it. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for inviting me part of, to be a part of the podcast. I really appreciate it. I always come on being like, I have nothing to say. I don't know why like anyone would reach out to me to like talk about stuff. So, um <laughs> Hope I didn't ramble too much. <laughs> no, no, nope. perfect. Look at us. We're we're right on time. You're doing great. I really appreciate it. you had good insight, and I think people are gonna be psyched. So, thank you. Thanks, Lily. Thanks so much to Taylor for joining me. That was a lot of fun, and of course, you can check out all of Taylor's info in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode and want to hear more Midriff, please subscribe. And if you want more people to hear it, you can share it or rate and review it on your more podcast app so that they can hear it too. Thanks for listening.